0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you're a God who speaks. And this morning, God, as we uh, look at this chapter of Ecclesiastes, we ask that you would open our eyes to see what you're saying. God, this has been a challenging and confronting book. And I pray as we get to the end of it, you would help us to be a people who are able to locate hope because of where we find ourselves, standing on the other side of the cross with Jesus offering us life and life to the full. So God, we pray this morning that you would speak to us powerfully by your word, transform us, make us more like Jesus by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said... Amen. Amen. I, I don't know if you're aware, I've, I've been um, studying a master's over the last 18 months, and I know, right, because I wasn't busy enough to to just add another thing to my plate. During lockdown, I was like, yeah, I've got some time. I'll start a master's. have been doing a master's of missional leadership, and um, I tend to submit all of my essays at 11.59 and 49 seconds. Um, on the Friday night that they're due. And my, my, my second most recent essay, I, um, I just sort of drafted it out. You know, you put the skeleton in there. I put introduction, conclusion, and then I just highlighted, you know, put something here, put something here. And uh, I'd been working on the body of my essay, and I got to 11.58. And I realized that I really needed to submit this. And so I frantically converted it to PDF and was uploading it to turn it in and then realized, oh, no. I've left my introduction and conclusion with just, put something here, put something here. And I got, I got the essay back from my lecturer. And I'm, I'm pretty sure he was annoyed, because um, his first comment was, well, I can clearly see you ran out of time, and then didn't make really any other comments on my essay. Uh, and, and it was kind of funny, right? because I'd put all of this work into the body of my essay, and I've left the introduction and conclusion completely empty. And often, they're the most important parts, right? And the same is true for Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes has a very defined introduction and conclusion. If you remember, Alnardo, our lead pastor of Southwest, he opened our series. And he, there is a, a different voice in Ecclesiastes uh, at, at the introduction and the conclusion. He calls it the Morgan Freeman voice or the narrator or the third person, whoever it is. But he, he really opens and closes Ecclesiastes in the same way, using the same phrases And we heard in that reading there that the the author was not in a rush as he wrote this book. This is a, a lifetime lesson. Unlike me, he was just in a massive rush, quickly, frantically hitting the submit button, hoping my internet does not stall in that last second before the due minute. The author of Ecclesiastes was in no rush. He took time. He carefully curated these sayings in order that the truth arranged in the way that it did, had the intended impact and purpose that he was meaning for it. Well, Ecclesiastes opens and closes with these words, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And we have to ask ourselves the question, everything, all of it, all of life, And what we have seen as we've journeyed through Ecclesiastes is that the philosopher, the preacher, has walked down a number of roads to demonstrate from his personal lived experience that all is a mist, a vapor. He's walked down the road of pleasure, and he has found at the end of that road the law of diminishing returns that nothing Ultimately, satisfies. He's walked down the road of possessions and realized at the end of that road, there is a cul-de-sac as well, because you simply cannot take all of the things that you have amassed in your life with you. He's walked down the road of time and found that we live in a life where seasons come and go without meaning or purpose, times for joy and times for suffering, and it seems to make no sense. He's walked down the road of wealth. And he's realized at the end of that cul-de-sac that you simply, no matter how much you have, you simply will always want more. He's walked down the road of justice and morality and realized at the end of that cul-de-sac, without God, it is simply a mist. There simply cannot be justice the way that we want it to be. He's walked down the road. We, We didn't really touch on this one, but here at the end of chapter 12, he's walked down the road of youthfulness and he's realized that this too is a cul-de-sac, because we all get old and the bits of our bodies start to sag and break down and not work the way that they used to. And he arrives at a conclusion. Every single road that he has walked down is a dead end. In the quest for the good life, in the quest for meaning, in the quest for a life of significance and purpose, His exploration has delivered dead end after dead end after dead end after cul-de-sac. It is all meaningless. And so he ends the way that he began the book. Verse 8, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. It's a bit of a depressing book at times, isn't it? But as we look back on the last few months... As we reflect, I don't know what your reflection has been on this journey through the book of Exodus. Maybe your feelings have been the same as what the narrator here feels at the end of the book. As he steps back and looks at all of what has been said, this is what he says. He uses two similes to describe this journey in Ecclesiastes. What it says in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, like a a cattle prod. They're collected sayings, like firmly embedded nails, given by one shepherd, be warned, my son, of adding anything in addition to them, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. He uses these two similes to describe the wisdom of the philosopher, of the preacher. He says, firstly, these words are like a, a goad, like a cattle prod, like a... An implement that a a herdsman will use to prod sheep and cattle to steer them in the right direction. And as we've read through Ecclesiastes and and preached through this series, perhaps you've felt that. At times, this book has been painful, it's been confronting. It's it's forced us to face the realities of our world and our assumptions and the, the, the scripts that we live our life by. And it's been painful at times. And yet, at the same time, it has kept us on track. The second thing he says is they're, they're like nails firmly driven into timber that once those nails have been driven in, they're very difficult to remove. I don't know if you've ever tried doing that, removing a nail that has been you know, embedded beneath the surface of the timber. You, tr- you try and get that sucker out, it's really hard. And perhaps what the, the, um, the narrator here is saying is that the, the sayings of the philosopher tend to lodge themselves in our minds and in our subconscious. They're firmly embedded in there and they become a part of our shaping worldview. Once they get in there, they're hard to get out. These are the sayings of the preacher that haunt the dreams of the secular mind. They become lyrics of songs like Ecclesiastes 3 that Pete Seeger and the birds put into that song, Turn, Turn, Turn. These are the sayings of the wise that once they're in there, get lodged in there and form and shape our thinking. And so what do we do with this letter, this letter that has prodded us and probed us and forced us to think? And perhaps for you that it really depends on where you sit in your faith journey. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you find yourself on the journey of seeking, trying to discover this, and this book has really confronted the assumptions of your worldview. Perhaps you find yourself in the the de-church, deconstructing category, and you think, you know what, this book, I, I feel like I'm running to these things, and this book has confronted my current journey because what I've realized is there is nowhere else to go. Like, where do do I go when I take God out of the frame? If I'm trying to run away from Him, what am I running to? Because it's a depressing reality. Or perhaps you're here and you would say, yes, I love Jesus. I follow Him. And this book has been a helpful confirmation and reminder that we live in a world that is seeking to shape us and form us and make us a certain type of person. The scripts and narratives of our culture. And here the preacher comes And reminds us of their logical conclusions. What do we make of this? Well, here is the conclusion that the preacher gives, that the narrator gives us. After 12 chapters of saying meaningless, meaningless, vanity of vanity, a mist, a vapour, a chasing after the wind, is there any good news at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12? And you're like, please give me something good here is what he says, you ready drum roll. Verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. You are like is that it? Are you kidding me? Fear God and keep his Are you serious? Like after all of that, after all of the insightfulness of Ecclesiastes, after the way that the preacher has been able to like dissect our thinking and our worldview and make us feel this deep sense of existential angst, we arrive at the end of the book and he's like, fear God and keep his commandments. What a letdown. Or is it? Or is it? Perhaps this is the most profound thing that has been said in the book of Ecclesiastes so far. Because there have been many others who have followed in Koheleth's footsteps, in the preacher's footsteps. Many other philosophers who would look at the same body of evidence that he has looked at and arrive at a very different conclusion. Many would spiral into some form of unhealthy depression. Others into an ungodly hedonism that would just simply pursue pleasure without any sense of accountability and others somewhere in between but not the book of Ecclesiastes. It offers, as it wraps up, it offers us a different perspective. Something shatters the frame that we have been looking through for the last 12 chapters. And the conclusion here says this, the reason that you exist, the purpose of your life, is to fear God and follow His ways is to recognize Him as ultimate. Now, we're not talking fear in the sense of terror. We're talking fear in the sense of reverence and awe. Making God ultimate. Worship. That's what we're speaking of here. Part of the problem that we have with this word fear is that in the West, the concept we have of God is that He is tame. That God is cute. We have made God domestic. We're like we've domesticated God in our imaginations. We've made Him the cheerleader of our dreams and the vending machine of the blessings that we want in life, that He somehow serves us and helps us reach our full potential of what it means to be human on our terms. We've made God cute. We've made God small, like a, I don't know, like a bilby or a quokka. When in fact, God is a roaring lion. And I think we desperately need to recover a big God theology. We desperately need to see God for who he is, and all-sovereign, all-powerful, a consuming fire, a God of pure holiness and righteousness. Not a cute, tame God who bows to every beck and call of our demands and desires. This is the God we worship. And any less, to be frank, would be a God who is not worthy of our worship at all. This is the duty of mankind, to fear God and to follow Him, to worship Him, to be in awe of Him. What the preacher is saying here is that The best and fullest way to be human. That's what that word means. The duty of all mankind. All there is to humanity is to live with the acute awareness that God is real, that He is present and to live according to His ways. To fear God and to follow Him. You see, when we take God out of life, when we take him away, when we take him out of the frame of reference, like the preacher has done all throughout this book, we are left with a void of existential angst and crisis. We are left floating on the oceans of searching for meaning and significance in all of these things that ultimately disappoint us. And perhaps we're offered a few consolation prizes along the way, like... Enjoy your life. Enjoy the labours of your work. Enjoy your youth because that's all there is. But when we take God out of the picture, it's depressing. But when we put God into the picture, we find purpose and meaning and significance. Fear God and obey Him. But why? Why do we do that? Have a look at what verse 14 says. For God will bring every deed into judgment including every hidden thing, whether good or evil, the end. Full stop, the end. Like, wow, really? Finish on judgment? I mean, couldn't couldn't he lift us up a bit? And in true to his form, I mean, the preacher, he is just willing to finish the book on reality. But why does he end in judgment? Why does he end like this? Because I think he wants us to see. And, And I mentioned this a few weeks ago, when... If we say there is no God, God does not exist, then there are no moral absolutes. And if there are no moral absolutes, then our moral framework is something that is culturally defined. Like together we just make that up. And if there is a culturally defined moral framework, then there really is no way that you can say what is right and what is wrong. And my actions simply just become things that I do you cannot hold me accountable but if there is a god then there are moral absolutes then there is a defined right and wrong and my actions count everything that I do matters because in the end god will judge every deed whether we've done right or wrong You see, without God, the book of Ecclesiastes is meaningless. But with God, a God who is good and fair and just and who will judge, then absolutely everything matters. It all matters. All of our life, all of our actions, all of our words, it matters. You see, the life well lived, the good life, that the preacher has been chasing here through the book of Ecclesiastes is not a futile grasping at significance from things like wealth and possessions and youth and wisdom. No, the good life is about worshipping God. It's about living with the acute awareness that God is real, that He is present and that He above all else is to be feared. Fear God and obey Him. You know, if we want to live a life of purpose and meaning and significance, the point that Ecclesiastes has driven home week after week after week is that we simply will not arrive there if we take God out of the picture. So we've been created, we've been designed for a purpose, and that purpose is to know God and be known by him. That's why Ecclesiastes will say that God has placed eternity in the hearts of humanity. We have this longing inside of us for something more than what we see with our eyes, for something more than life under the sun. We long for transcendence. We long for meaning and purpose, and that is found In God and God alone. And Jesus reiterates that point as he comes. I want to read a a short passage of scripture from John chapter 10 for you. It says this. and Maybe we've only got 10.10 on the screen. I'm just going to read a little bit more than what's on the screen. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You want to know how to find pasture? You You want to know how to find satisfaction? You know what it means to find life? and life to the full, and life in abundance, and life the way that God intended it for, for it to be, we have to come to the good shepherd. We have to come to the gate. Jesus is the one who offers us true life. And to be honest with you, I was like, I, how do I wrap this series up? I could go with the point of like, obey God and keep His commandments, well, none of us can do that. We need Jesus for that and that would be a true application of the gospel. But I think what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying here at the end is simply this. Live life and acknowledge God. Live your life and acknowledge God because without Him, our lives will spiral into a void of existential fear, dread and meaninglessness. But with Him, We find life and life to the full, life in abundance. (coughs) Ecclesiastes has acted as a holy provocateur. It's forced us to ask questions, it's forced us to judge the logical conclusions that we arrive at in a world where we have pulled God out of the picture. And I think Ecclesiastes is often far bolder than we are willing to be in the church. And I wonder if one of the challenges of Ecclesiastes is for us to see what it means to bring the same challenge to our world, our culture, to be holy provocateurs, to be a people who would stand in the midst of a secular age and say, guys, do you see the conclusion of your views? Not in a judgy way, in a pushy way, but in a confronting way, in a way that helps people see. Perhaps the church needs to recover the lost art of being holy provocateurs, a prophetic witness in Western secular culture. And I think that's important because if we don't disrupt the status quo, if we don't force people to think, then what we're simply offering to people is simply Jesus as another optional extra in the buffet of options that they are currently offered. Ecclesiastes brings us to the end of ourselves and it, it brings us to the cul-de-sac, the dead end. And it says life is not found there. What would it look like for us to be a people who would take this culture, our friends and our family along the journey and say, see, there's nothing here, but can I offer you an alternative? His name is Jesus. And my hope is as we've been through this series on a search for meaning, that you have met Jesus at the end of every cul-de-sac, that you have met Jesus on the road with the philosopher, that you have met Jesus as every secular narrative of this world has been exposed, that that we would wake up and see Jesus more clearly as the one who holds out to us the offer of life, of purpose, meaning, significance and eternity. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. He is the one who has chosen to lay down his life, to give it up in order that we might have it. And we're going to celebrate together the Lord's Supper, our weekly tangible reminder of the gospel. If you are a follower of Jesus, then this meal is for you. We invite you to take the time that you need during our our last set of of worship together and consider, reflect upon what Christ has done for you. The elements will be up the back on the tables. There is one up the back on the right and one to the left. The grape juice in that small cup represents the the, the blood of Jesus that was shed, was poured out for our forgiveness. The bread represents His body that was broken. And Jesus has done this so that you may find life. This meal that we celebrate, far from being a somber occasion, is a celebration of life. A celebration of what Christ has achieved for us. And so we invite you as as you are ready, as your heart is ready to head to the back, If you need to do business with God, get on your knees, take the Lord's Supper, pray, go with a friend, ask them to pray for you, but don't leave this space without doing business with God. Perhaps for you this morning, maybe, maybe, you know, you haven't taken the Lord's Supper the last few weeks. We've been doing this since COVID and you realise there's there's something that's been holding you back this morning You're feeling the prompting of the Spirit to to head to the back and to pray and to take the Lord's Supper. you need to do that with your GC leader, whoever it is, the friend who invited you. But this is a time for us to pause, to remember, to participate in our formational practice and habit of celebrating what Jesus has done for us. So I invite you to stand, church, as we transition together to worship, to respond, to celebrate the good news and the gospel of Jesus, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are the gate. You show us the way to life, that you are the good shepherd, that you lead us on the path. This morning, we wanna confess that too often we've lived our lives without you. That so often we've chosen to believe the narrative of the world around us. We're drawn in by it, we find it compelling. And so this morning, would you bring us back? Help us to be a people who would not simply just believe this, but embody this to our culture, to be a church of holy provocateurs that would demonstrate and declare to a watching world that every place that you are searching for meaning is a dead end. May may we be a people who find life and life to its full, life abundantly, a life of purpose, a life of meaning and significance and the promise of life everlasting only in Jesus. We worship you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. God's people said, Amen.